Throughout history, a lot of the better-known stories and myths have had something to do with money. Think of the legend of King Midas, who was so greedy he wanted everything he touched to turn to gold. Think of the well-known Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol, in which the stingy miser Ebenezer Scrooge is the main character whose greed and lack of generosity need fixing. Even some of the parables of Jesus had to do with money and property, like the prodigal son who squandered his inheritance, or the rich man and Lazarus, or the rich man who built bigger barns to store his surplus stuff instead of sharing it with others. Money is important. We all think about it and wonder about it. And as believers, we look to the Bible to make sure we have the right attitude toward possessions and wealth. Today on Groundwork, we begin a series to wonder about this. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And uh, Daryl, on this program, we are going to kick off a short four-part series to dig into Scripture to discover what the Bible says about money, possessions, what today we might call finances. So we really do need to understand this, Scott, because as believers, we're going to be entrusted with some. So we might as well know what God wants us to do with it, because if we don't know that as believers, we could run into a whole lot of problems and we're not going to be able to be the blessing that God wants us to be. Exactly. And we've heard from our listeners over the years, too. People do have questions like, does God care about my finances? If we have proper concern for having enough money, is that a sin? And, you know, Daryl, in recent years, too, during and after the COVID pandemic, a lot of people found their financial lives upended. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs, jobs that they thought they would never lose all of a sudden were gone. So there's been a lot of anxiety surrounding money. And so we do want to wonder how might the Bible speak into those concerns. And if we think about it, Scott, as believers, it's about the money, but it isn't about the money. There are some things going on underneath that our hearts and our emotions and our livelihoods are connected to that God wants to address as well. How do we feel about money? What's our attitude towards money and how do we live? So that's also included in this series. And the whole Bible, uh, as we will touch on in the series, uh, the whole Bible does uh, have things in various parts to say about money and finances. But we're going to begin today with the Old Testament and sort of ask, Daryl, what do the laws of God and what were some of the practices God established for ancient Israel? What, what do those have to say to us yet today in this regard? I think one of the places we can start would be the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. That's one of the places where God talks about possessions. And we can find the Ten Commandments. There are two versions of it, virtually the same, Exodus 20, and then it gets repeated uh, for the new generation in Deuteronomy 5. But it's really the Eighth and the Tenth Commandments that we want to look at uh, in this first part of this first program of this series. The Eighth Commandment is simple. You must not steal. The Tenth Commandment is equally straightforward. You must not covet your neighbor's property. The underlying conclusion is that there are properties that you would want to steal or there are properties that your neighbor has that you might want to covet. So it has to be something that you have as possession in order for him to put that forbidden rule in. Right. The assumption is my neighbor has property, but this commandment comes to my neighbor, too, which means I have property. So, you know, if there weren't an assumption that all of us have stuff, that all of us have something in our lives, right, then then these commandments would be superfluous. So I think that's important because all through Christian history, there have been some big questions raised about this, like may Christian people even own property? Or, or are we all supposed to take a vow of poverty? Are we supposed to sell everything that we have and give it away and have nothing? 
Or is the expectation that, well, no, even if you're a faithful follower of God, sure, you will still have things. And the existence of these two commandments, the Eighth and the Tenth Commandment, would seem to answer the question, yes, it is okay for your neighbor to have things. It's okay for you to have things your neighbor could look at in your life. But what's your attitude going to be? And like I said earlier, it goes deeper than the possessions. Mm. God cares about our attitudes and how we live in community, knowing that we're going to have possessions and our neighbor is going to have possessions. And you've mentioned it, that Christians who love God all over the place, they have different views on this. And it's okay for them to disagree on this. But what we found is that God cares about how we treat our neighbor and how we treat ourselves in the midst of having possessions. Exactly. Uh, So those two commandments are pretty short, uh, but uh, let's go to an expansion on especially that Eighth Commandment. And one place that we can go to to see what's behind this commandment is the kind of classic Reformed confessional document, the Heidelberg Catechism. And the the Heidelberg Catechism uh, treats each of the Ten Commandments in turn. And here's what it says about the Eighth Commandment, the rule against stealing. The Catechism says, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery punishable by law— But in God's sight, theft also includes all scheming and swindling in order to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or by means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. And in addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. So the catechism does a very good job at getting into the underlying behaviors of what people have done in the past to get money or to get possessions. And so these deceptive means by which you are disingenuous to your neighbor, God is not honored in those. And so the Heidelberg Catechism really zeroes in on the motive, the attitude, and behavior of a believer. Some of the things that were mentioned in that catechism uh, go back to, you know, the you know, the 16th century uh, at a time when markets were different than they are today. But the idea is don't cheat somebody, you know. So, I mean, today we still have scales at the supermarket, right? And if you, even if you do the self-checkout line, right, you got to put, you know, your your baked potatoes, your, your russet potatoes on the scale. Well, the store can't add a half a pound, right? I mean, if it's two pounds, you should get charged two pounds. And if the store, you know, cheats you and says, oh, no, that's two and a half pounds and charges you for it, that kind of thing is also considered to be stealing. But the idea is that the implication of the law against theft is that we have to do things that are helpful for our neighbors so that we can share with our neighbors. And the goal is to not take from what they have but to appreciate and celebrate what God has given them and to learn the secret of being content with what God has given you. And that is the way that you live in harmony with your neighbor. You can't do that if you want what they have or if you're trying to get from them something. The possessions become more important than the relationship, and that's a problem. Exactly. The main thing we want to establish in this first part of this first program of the series is that If you're a follower of God, it's okay. It's almost expected that you will have some possessions, what we might call today money. But you got to use them well, and we'll be spending a lot of time. You know, I also think not long ago on Groundwork, Daryl, you and I did a series on the book of Joshua. As our listeners might recall, we kind of skipped over this in the series because there's a long, 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 long section in the middle part of Joshua, chapter after chapter, devoted to the division of the promised land. Each tribe of Israel was given an allotment of the land. Again, what that tells you is 
Being a faithful follower of God doesn't mean you don't have anything. Even the Israelites had land given to them. So we see a God who owns everything, dividing the land according to how he sees fit and brings glory to himself by making sure they have what they need. Christians are not all called to live an impoverished life is what we find out. But yeah, I think, Daryl, these rules for ancient Israel, they can still speak to us today. And so in just a moment, we're going to think about that. So stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, we just noted that in the book of Joshua, a lot of narrative space is devoted to the division of the promised land among the tribes of Israel. That's Joshua. But let's back up. We're going to kind of go backwards in, in, in the Pentateuch here. Now we're going to go to Deuteronomy, the book before Joshua, because Moses has a lot of important things to say to Israel just before they move into taking possession of the promised land. I think it's important for us to look at it this way, because if we pay close attention, we'll see how these things apply to us today. So looking at Deuteronomy 8, listen to the words of Moses. It says, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will not lack anything, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiple multiply, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Powerful words of uh, Moses here in Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy is a long, long sermon to the new generation. They've been wandering as a punishment for their doubt 40 years earlier. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. The older generation has passed away. The new generation will be moving in through Joshua into the promised land. And so Moses, in this long sermon, just keeps kind of getting them ready for the new circumstances that will pertain in the promised land. And the main thing that he is kind of saying there is, you know, 40 years in the wilderness. Boy, it wasn't too hard to forget God then, right? Uh, Because if God didn't give you a miracle bread of manna in the morning, you'd starve. If God didn't bring water out of a rock in a dry desert place of death, you'd dehydrate and die, right? But now in the promised land, you're not going to get manna. You're not going to get miracle water. You're going to get water from a well. You're going to get food from your own garden, and you might just forget God now. 
And I think that the main theme you just said, Scott, of Deuteronomy is the word remember. Mm. Remember who God is. Remember how he brought you out of Egypt. Remember how he fed you in the desert. Remember all the things that he has done, especially when you get into a place where those divine interventions are not happening regularly on a daily basis. When he establishes you and roots you in a place that is yours, don't rest on your laurels and think, oh, I did this because pride will set in if you forget who gave you the ability to do these things. He's always telling them to remember, Scott. Exactly. Uh, in the promised land, you're going to bake bread, you know? What smells better and looks better than a nice freshly baked loaf of bread, right? And slice it and put butter on it. It melts. It's the greatest thing in the world. And Moses is saying, but you know what? That bread you made, it's just as much God's gift as the manna you never could understand, but that God gave you. Manna, gift, loaf of bread from your oven, gift. Remember, do not forget. Don't start to take God for granted. Don't think, you know, I did this. No, in the promised land, as in the wilderness, Moses says it's still all God all the time. I think it's important for us to remember, too, when we get the promotion at work or we get the Mm. new job, when we graduate from high school, when we have these different moments in our life where increase comes to us, it isn't necessarily because we earned it in all the hard work we did, which is which is good news. We did work hard. However, it is God who gave us the ability, the opportunity. He spoke it into the ear of the supervisor to promote us. He's the one that gave us the new check and the new promotion. The Lord is the one who gets the glory for all of that. And if we remember to give the credit back to him, it will keep us humble. And it's a countercultural way to live, right? Society says, just focus on ourselves. You know, we're encouraged to say, hey, I am my family's breadwinner. I bring home the bacon. You know, this is my retirement portfolio, my car, my house. But Moses' voice from thousands of years ago calls us up short. Nope, it's all God's on loan to you. In fact, speaking of being on loan, let's back up another, a little bit farther into the Pentateuch. We've been going backwards from Joshua to Deuteronomy. Now we're going to go uh, to Leviticus. Leviticus 25. Listen to what God says. The land must not be sold permanently because, God speaking here, because the land is mine mm-hmm. and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there's no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the year since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. But if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee, and then it will be returned in the Jubilee so they can go back to their own property." This notion of the Jubilee is a very important notion, and and it looks like that in this situation, God has a way to uh, restart the economy, set the economy back to what it was before, so the debts are erased and things of that nature. And it's very important for us to know that God set that up in his way of how he wanted the people to interact with one another. God did a lot with sevens with Israel, right? Seven days a week, seventh day is a Sabbath. Uh, every seventh year was supposed to be a sabbatical year where you would give your fields a rest. And then seven times seven is 49. And so the Jubilee was every 50 years. And right, as you just said, economic reset. Push the reset button. Tear up everybody's IOUs. If uh, your neighbor had their property foreclosed on 20 years ago and they can't get it back, 
Jubilee says it's yours again. We all go back to square one. We're not sure if Israel actually ever did this, but, but the message is clear. The land is mine, God says. And yeah, I've divided it up among you, but it's mine. It's all on loan from me. So I want you to do with it what I want you to do. And I don't want anybody to be perpetually impoverished. This is the concept of landlord. The Lord is the one who owns the land. The Lord is the one who allots the land. The Lord says, this is what you need to do to reset the economy of my land. Now, you don't own the land. You just stay here. You're a steward. I put you in charge, but I own the land. So I will do what I would like to do with it. And I want the economy to be even and back set to nobody owing anything. That's where you live in abundance. I really wish we did that today. Well, and of course, our modern day nations throughout the world are different than Israel. We're not a theocracy. God isn't the ultimate king. But the principles certainly, as you said, they certainly apply to us, right? That we continue to know that it's not my house. It's the house God has given to me, right? It's not my car. It's the car God has helped me to get it. It's on loan from God. And that certainly also means that we have to treat it as God's and use it as God would have us to use it. So, that implies a lot of practical applications and implications, and we're going to think about that in the last part of the program in just a minute, so stay tuned. As followers of Jesus, we are called to bear spiritual fruit, but we cannot bear fruit on our own. It's through the Holy Spirit who connects us to the life-giving love of Christ that we are able to produce the fruit that glorifies God. And as our lives become more fruitful, we are drawn into a sweeter communion with our amazing triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This May, explore the fruit of the Spirit in a series of devotions from today. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. I'm Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork. This is the first episode of a four-part series on God and finances. Uh, And in the remaining three episodes, Daryl, we're going to think more about money, possessions, and finances. We're going to talk about the spiritual dangers of money becoming an idol in our life. We're going to talk about the concept of stewardship and tithing uh, and and how that influences how we use our money. The last program, we're going to think about providence, a little bit what we've been thinking about also in this episode, that God gives us everything. But in this um, part of this uh, first program, let's end up with some practical ideas. And what do these Old Testament laws mean for us yet today? I'm glad that we can find relevance of the Old Testament in today because there is clearly good principles and good gems that we could learn from Scripture. And one of the first is that the Bible everywhere assumes that God's people will have possessions. And today we call it money, but there are other opportunities and possessions that we will have. God assumes that we will have it, and then he wants us to live a certain way because of that. And it's, you know, the old somewhat rhyming line, we have to have the attitude of gratitude, that that is what we need to do. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism we mentioned earlier uh, in the illumination of uh, the Eighth and the Tenth Commandments, in in that same Heidelberg Catechism uh, near the end when we think about prayer, the Catechism says that prayer is the chief part of the gratitude we owe to God. When we pray, it is our best way of saying thank you to God. And so, you know, when, when we take stock of where we're at in life, when we look at what our income is or what we pay in taxes or, you know, what our savings for retirement are or what savings we have put away for our kids or our grandkids to go to college, we look at all of that and say, it's all from God. It's all a gift. I'm so thankful. And we say that in prayer. 
And also, we don't say, okay, God, that's enough. We're done. We're not going to ask you to provide for us anymore. And prayer is a continual relationship and conversation Mm -hmm. with God. So we're going to ask God to continue to provide for us, to continue to watch over us and continue to help us to be good stewards. So that's something that is going to be ongoing in the life of a believer. And it's never going to be done. What does society tell us? I mean, you see this even on TV ads from, you know, financial advisors or companies that that do financial advising. What's the goal? Well, you want to be financially independent. The Christian says, I never want to be financially independent. I want to be financially dependent on God, right? I'm dependent all the time. It's very important for us to realize also because we remember everything belongs to God, we can't just do whatever we want to do with it, Scott. Exactly. Like with the Jubilee that we just looked at uh, as the year of Jubilee uh, was established in Leviticus 25, so also uh, God wants us to do with what he gives us, what he would have us to do. And uh, there's a very simple word in the Bible for what God expects of us, and that is generosity. So because we serve a God whose character is that of generosity, he gives and gives Mm. and gives. He is a giving God for God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. He gives us life breath and strength each and every day we wake up and he continues to provide for us and he calls us to be generous like him and there's a verse in Proverbs 22 9 that says the generous themselves will be blessed and for they will share their food with the poor so God actually expects us to show generosity in the way he does with our possessions. We've been in the Old Testament in this episode, but let's uh, grab a couple New Testament texts before we close. Ephesians 4:28, Paul writes, "Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need." So there's that generosity piece again that uh, you also had in that Proverbs 22 line that uh, you just quoted, Daryl. Yep. And then Matthew 5, where Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches this. He says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus is saying that you're supposed to actually go the extra mile, literally. Yeah, I mean, kind of give until it hurts. Don't give only what you think you can afford or be kind of stingy. Give generously. Share with those in need from the Ephesians text. On the flip side of all that, Daryl, it's probably not too surprising that having money is associated with several of the seven deadly sins, right? The wealthy are prone to pride, but pride can lead to envy. In case you see somebody who has more than you, certainly the most obvious of the deadly sins that apply to money is greed. But once you are a greedy person, it's also a kind of a short hop, skip, and a jump to get from greed to the deadly sin of anger. If you're angry, if somebody's doing better than you. So pride, envy, anger, and greed itself, seven deadly sins that all have something to do with the attitude toward our money and possessions going off the rails. And when they go off the rails, I think one of the things, Scott, that we forget is that who is in control of who gets what allotment. And when we think that it's on us and it's our responsibility to go and get these things, sometimes that's how it goes off the rails. Well, they have my money. What do you Mm. mean? It's not your money. Or they are earning more than I think they should. Well, who put you in charge of that? I mean, God is the one that's supposed to be in charge of those things. So we need a dose of humility when it comes to those things. 
That is the New Testament antidote to almost every sin and almost every one of the seven deadly sins. And we did a series on that a while ago on Groundwork, and we saw again and again that the antidote to so many sins is Christ-like humility. When we have a humble attitude toward what we own, that is going to be more likely to lead us to generosity. But, Daryl, none of it's easy. Uh, None of it's just going to be automatic, right? We have to work at this. It's something that only happens through prayer and humility and the Holy Spirit's power. And that is how we get to the place where we remind ourselves that God is in control of things, that we remind ourselves that He is actually working on our behalf, and that we can be generous with the resources that we currently have and share them with others. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Darrell Delaney. Join us again next time as we continue our study of what Scripture teaches us about money with a look at the New Testament and passages that provide a biblical perspective on our attitude toward what we possess, as well as the spiritual dangers of a wrong perspective on money. Connect with us at our website, groundworkonline.com, to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Don Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacobs.